Welcome to the Trinity Forum Conversations podcast. You've likely noticed that information has become more and more accessible, and the tools for communicating with one another continue to expand. And yet we face a paradox. Community has become harder and harder to maintain, and the truth seems increasingly elusive. In this series, we'll focus on navigating the challenges of modernity. Our guests will give us insight on the nature of truth, the challenges of technology, and how to approach our common life. We'll talk with leading thinkers, including Jonathan Haidt, Peter Kreeft, Arthur Brooks, Francis Collins, and many others. In this episode, Cherie Harder will talk with Mark Knoll and Vincent McCote to discuss the challenge of Christian nationalism. As the lines between faith, politics, and patriotism have seemed to blur, it is increasingly important to understand the origin, ideas, and consequences of Christian nationalism, what it means, why it matters, and how best to respond. Responsible Christian patriots try to show how Christianity can be a service to the nation. Extreme nationalists make Christianity a servant of the nation. If you think about the cross, right, patriotism rightly construed from a Christian point of view will put the flag at the foot of the cross. Christian nationalism wants to drape the cross over them, right? So, so is, is God serving your country, the sponsor of your country, or are you as a Christian operating wherever you are and, and having a loyalty, but not your primary loyalty uh, to your country over God. This episode is an edited version of our online conversation from June of 2021. You can find the full video of that conversation along with our full catalog of event videos on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. The topic that we're discussing today can be a controversial and confusing one, as well as a vitally important one. The horrifying events of January 6, when the entire world watched as some of those who stormed the Capitol, erected crosses and prayed in the Senate chamber, dramatically illustrates the ways in which Christian symbols have been instrumentalized and fused to nationalistic and political ends. But if those events of the January 6th insurrection represented a shocking extreme, many of the ideas or the assumptions that characterize Christian nationalism, including the conflation of Christian identity with American identity, or the belief that the US has a religiously covenantal relationship and is the new Israel, are fairly widespread and have acceptance among many people of faith so much so that they might not even be recognized as nationalistic, much less debated or questioned. So how do we understand and grapple with the question of Christian nationalism? How do we learn to recognize and wisely respond to its distortions? And how do we distinguish living out one's faith in the public square with instrumentalizing faith for political ends? All these questions form a daunting task and one that's often elicited more heat than light, more reaction than reflection. So I am particularly delighted to welcome to today's conversation two guests who are among the most respected, thoughtful, and insightful scholars of American Christianity of their time, Mark Knoll and Vince Picote. Mark Knoll is a renowned historian whose scholarship over the course of his distinguished career has focused on the history of Christianity in the United States. He's an emeritus member of two history departments at two different universities, both Wheaton College and the University of Notre Dame, a member of the National Academy of Arts and Sciences, and a recipient of the National Humanities Medal, 
bestowed by the President of the United States for Excellence in the Humanities. His many works include the award-winning book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, God and Race in American Politics, A Short History, The Civil War as Theological Crisis, and In the Beginning Was the Word, the Bible in American Public Life. Joining him is Vincent McCote. Vince is the Associate Professor of Theology and the Director of the Center for Applied Christian Ethics at Wheaton College. He's a member of the Evangelical Theological Society and the Society of Christian Ethics, and is also a regular columnist for Comet Magazine, as well as writing for a broad swath of other journals, including Books and Culture, Christianity Today, Christian Scholars Review, and many others. He's also the author of The Political Disciple, A Theology of Public Life, Reckoning with Race and Performing the Good News, and The Spirit in Public Theology, Appropriating the Legacy of Abraham Kuyper, as well as a contributor to many other works. So Mark and Vince, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. It's great to have you here. Thank so you. we're going to dive right in with what seems like an easy question, but can actually be quite a thorny one, which is, what is Christian nationalism? How would you define it or describe it? And is it a set of ideas or a theological construct or more a set of attitudes? So Mark, we'll start with you on that one. Yes, a very good place to begin. I think I'd start by trying to distinguish between responsible Christian patriotism and what might be called damaging or destructive Christian nationalism. Responsible Christian patriots love their country but also realize that God's standards of right and wrong must apply to my country as well, to, as well as to all the countries of, of the world. In contrast, um, Christian nationalists are often those who love their country right or wrong and refuse to allow any criticism of its history. Responsible Christian patriots try to show how Christianity can be a service to the nation. Extreme nationalists make Christianity a servant of the nation. Maybe a contrast can make the distinction even sharper. Responsible Christian patriotism expresses confident loyalty along with the capacity for self-criticism. Damaging or destructive Christian nationalism expresses fearful loyalty with a compulsion to demonize op opponents. But then it's really important to make a contextual statement that these are polar opposites with a lot of ambiguous gray areas in between particularly because, Sherry, as you mentioned, it, Christian nationalism is really not a, a sharply focused thing, but a series of loosely defined ideological positions. Let me add uh, one thing to that uh, in terms of, sort of a short way to sort of illustrate that, right? If you think about the cross, right, patriotism rightly construed from a Christian point of view will put the flag at the foot of the cross. Christian nationalism wants to drape the cross over the Right. So so is, is God serving your country, the sponsor of your country, or are you as a Christian operating wherever you are and, and having a loyalty, but not your primary loyalty uh, to your country over God? Yeah. You know, both of you mentioned the, the area of sort of ambiguity that seems to attend our conception of Christian nationalism. And Vince, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, uh, 
according to many descriptions, there almost seems to be an overlay of white supremacy that accompanies many of the attitudes of Christian nationalism. Uh, but you pointed out in some of your writings that there's actually, in, in some cases, even in African-American churches, some Christian nationalist assumptions, and would love to get your thoughts on uh, what is, how does race play in to, our, to Christian nationalist assumptions or ideas? Sure. I think one of the things that is important to note is that there are a lot of people, I mean, Martin Luther King said he thought the United States was a Christian nation. Now, what he meant by Christian nation and what people are talking about for the Christian nationalism now are not the same thing. What King meant was this is a country with a Judeo-Christian background and that out of that background, that this has something to do with being a country that's recognizing liberty for all persons. And are you willing to live up to that? So he wants to put the Constitution in front of people and say, is this really equality for everyone? Or are you saying it's only equality for some? Whereas I think when it comes to, I would say, contemporary Christian nationalism, which uh, is, is, I think, the, the thing that's more the, the, the challenge, I would say it's disproportionately white, but not exclusively white, right? So if you look at the surveys, I've been, you'll see that there are people of varying, American citizens of various backgrounds who will have some of the, this complex of ideas uh, or commitments but it's largely associated with people that, that are predominantly white. That said, I think it's, it's the case that it's, it's an oversimplification to conflate white supremacy and white nationalism with Christian nationalism. And I think one of the particular reasons for that is probably the great majority of people that are Christian nationalists aren't even necessarily people that might even use that label to describe themselves, right? I think they have by having unwitting commitment to God sort of sponsoring America, but they may not recognize it as sponsorship. Whereas there are people who have some of the same ideas that are uh, talking about uh, Christian nationalism and, uh, or rather, white supremacy. And for them, being a white nationalist includes the idea of being Christian as sort of part of the heritage, or et cetera. So I think it's important to, to distinguish those things. I think the moment that we're in makes it easy to confuse those things, particularly because it you get more rewarded for be, for being you know incendiary and inflammatory, and 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 that's one of the ways I think uh, that, that that can happen too easily. Uh, Mark, let me ask you about uh, how this movement sort of developed in that, you know, in some ways, I think there might be a similar challenge with conspiracy, you know, conspiracy theorists rarely think they're conspiracy theorists, they, you know, think they have uncovered the truth. I'm betting Christian nationalists don't really think of themselves as Christian nationalists, you know, they, they see this as a, you know, a coherent approach to public life. So I'd love to ask you kind of where does the movement come from, you know, what are sort of the intellectual antecedents were some of these ideas held by founders and you know in particular as the the author of the scandal of the evangelical mind which looked at strains of anti-intellectualism within evangelicalism does that strain play a role in christian nationalism yes i'm a historian and therefore a coward about a lot of current events so i'm going to let vince handle the immediate origins of, of what we're talking about today but i think historically it's very clear that american christian nationalism that surfaced in various ways throughout american history begins before there's the united states it really begins with british imperial protestantism in the colonial wars between britain and france in the 18th century during those conflicts 
Britons looked upon themselves as defenders of the truth, defenders of the Bible, defenders of freedom. France was everything evil, everything imaginable, particularly because in the Protestant eye, France was papal, Roman Catholic. During the American Revolution, loyalists and patriots all both treated each other as demonic, inspired by tyranny, and opposed to the Christian faith. Now, the patriots won, so their viewpoint becomes enshrined. You could say during the, the, the Civil War, North and South both treated each other as extreme examples of what honest, straight-thinking, Bible-believing people rejected. That's deep in our background. Obviously, there are things that have happened since the, the Second World War that they're political, um, ethnic, economic, that, that has stirred the pot. But the, the idea that the United States is a chosen nation imperiled by its religious and political enemies, that idea goes way back. And the anti-intellectualism part is usually these extreme views are promoted by people who are appe appealing demo democratically, lowest common denominator, but who are effective users of the media. It used to be speech, newspapers, publishing books. Now it's, of course, the, the, the new social media. So older ideas fashioned in response to contemporary crises circulated by the uh, explosion of popular access in social media. Here's the way I think to frame it, particularly in terms of, I guess, those people that I would say might be nationalists without knowing it, mm -hmm. is that if you think about threats of secularization happening in society, and let's not kid ourselves, there have been threats of secularization, right? So, so yeah. people's experience of that and then narratives that people hear about that leads them to, to fear that something is being lost. And the way that it gets articulated is, you know, we are losing blank, fill in the blank. But the blank has something to do with what America is supposed to be properly as a country with a, a Judeo-Christian background. And I think to, to the extent that that gets intensified and people get fearful about it, then that creates a context where people, again, may, may say, well, well, I don't want to lose this. And, you know, it's not always very clear the specific things that they think they're going to lose, but it has something to do with some idea of a country that's supposed to be a Christian, for some explicitly Christian nation or a nation founded on Christianity. And they think it's going to be either secular or it's going to become something else. And I think also the background of the Cold War also plays uh, a, a role in that as well. Uh, so I think that that intensification of it for some people leads them to have a nervousness about it. And of course, that desire, that, that fear makes you want to, to hold on to something. But what is it that you're holding on to? How well can you articulate that? I'm not sure that, that a lot of the people, say over 50% of the people that would have some kind of genuine Christian nationalism, that they could articulate it specifically in terms of like several things. But there is this sense that, am I going to lose my country to something, whatever that something is, and that country that I'm losing is this country with this Christian background. Yeah, but it's a great point. And I, you clearly see many signs of, you know, fear, aggrievement. And in some cases, there are, there are good reasons for concern, you know, in that there has been, you know, certain 
certainly an encroaching secularism that has tried to sort of uh, drive expressions of faith out from the public square. So you know, given that there is both a palpable sense of danger and it's sometimes a, a valid one, we'll start with you on the events. What do you see as the harms to the church of Christian nationalism? I think one of the biggest harms is the lack of awareness about why you believe what you believe about it, honestly. In other words, what are the things that are actually shaping your view or your worldview? We'll use that, that term. What are shaping your worldview about how you're seeing what the United States is in relationship to you being a Christian? Mm-hmm. And are you being informed more by actually this Bible you say is your number one authority or are other things actually having the same level of formative influence about what you think is real and what you think ought to be uh, a priority for what God's people ought to be doing. And it winds up being, what should God's people ought to do? I think it honestly winds up operating this way. If you ask a lot of American evangelicals about what they think the interests of, what they think Christians around the world should think about public interests, they probably think, they may not admit it, but, but deep down or passively to say, they, they believe that, well, you should care about the interests of the United States because that's good for everybody. So, so they'll prioritize that over, over something else. They may not articulate that, but, but that's kind of the way that they, that, that they feel about it because they're thinking mostly about what's happening here and not thinking about the broader reality of Christianity being a global reality than a United States reality. I'm sure maybe I would add that, that we've heard a great deal of, of uh, well-researched commentary about church life last four or five years particularly, but stretching way back actually into the late uh, 20th century, where church divisions have actually taken place because individuals in the congregation say, you can't possibly want to vote for so-and-so and be a Christian. You can't possibly want to vote for so-and-so or be for this this or that public uh, platform being a Christian. And that that's the kind of inversion that I think Vince was talking about earlier, uh, draping the flag on the cross Christian people are going to disagree amongst themselves about what is good for society, and sometimes those disagreements will run very deep. But Christian people here, there, everywhere, now, in the past, in the future, if they don't define themselves primarily by the universal offer of forgiveness in Christ by the gospel, are really betraying the faith. Yes, and and, and on top of that, I think it is interesting to note the way that political identities are giving people the kind of meaning that really religious identities ought to give them. I mean, if you think about it, there's nothing in the Bible about modern political liberalism or about modern Democratic or Republican parties. So why would anybody think that being a Republican or being a Democrat is like the first marker of whether you're a Christian or not? Yet, there are people who absolutely say, I don't see how anybody who is a Christian could possibly fill in the blank, be a Republican or be a Democrat. Well, well, it's because of the, the way that there's been a, again, a cult, really an attachment that it's a sociopolitical or cultural commitment that winds up taking on religious significance. And it's like, well, yes, public engagement, yes, I think there's a big theological argument to make for that. That's not the same thing as saying, therefore, you must be part of party X. Mm-hmm. That is a fascinating point, Vince. I'd love to dig into it just a little bit in that, you know, it, public engagement is a good, 
you know, we are called to love our enemies. We're called to work for justice. You know, these are both Christian principles. And so one of the things I would love to kind of get more of your thoughts on is like, what is the difference between, you know, advancing Christian principles in the public square, leaning into really valuing that kind of work, giving time to it, which is also an expression of value and advancing or buying into Christian nationalism. I'd love to hear from both of you on that, but we'll start with this. Sure. I think I think the first thing is um, actually being able to understand how your faith is the basis for your public engagement. What, in other words, is it simply a kind of intuition? You just kind of feel like you should be able to do it, or you grew up in the United States where you have a level of political agency that most people haven't had in world history, and you just assume that, well, this is something we can do, and I'm a Christian, and maybe I should sort of kind of figure out how to do this. And, and, and so in other words, there isn't the argument or people aren't being formed in, the, in their churches in a way that tells them, here's why what you believe leads you to have public responsibility, whether it's say, because this is a version of the second grace commandment, loving your neighbor yourself, or it's part of the cultural mandate, the first page of the Bible about having the stewardship of the entirety of creation. They might not know any of that. But 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 you sort of absorb by kind of osmosis this idea that this is what you ought to be doing. And so you can't, but, but it's like, okay, well, why? And then when you get there, what determines your priorities? So what, what is it about what you believe that is orienting you towards your political commitments? And to me, I think that's less clear. I think I think it's 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 more vacant. And then, and then those other commitments, I think, wind up being what inform why people have uh, th those uh, political values. I think the danger is when one does, as a Christian, think, let's say go, you, you pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you wind up with a kind of belief that, or arriving at a belief, and again, maybe it happened by osmosis, maybe you didn't study and arrive at it, but you believe that we're supposed to be establishing God's kingdom on earth because we pray for the kingdom to come. To which my response is, nobody sees clearly enough to articulate public policy with a level of specificity about what the kingdom is going to look like. So that's a big danger because you wind up being, you know, this word triumphalism, this idea that I will tell you exactly what the kingdom of God is, exactly what it looks like. And if we do that through certain things culturally and certain things politically, then we will have arrived at what the kingdom of God is. Well, if Paul sees the glass darkly, I'm sure we do as well. So I don't think that we can really be so certain about that. So triumphalism is a danger about presuming we know much more than we can possibly know about the specificity of kingdom realities in public. I think I've, what I would have to say merely compliments what uh, Vince has to say, but it would involve a shout out to one of the sponsors today. Uh, the Center for Public Justice is a sponsor of this, along with a couple other organizations. And its task, it's given itself over the last, I don't know, 40 or 50 years to, to the notion that political responsibility takes thorough thinking through how you move from a biblical basis to the sorts of things Vince was talking about. In other words, intuitional politics based on simple assumptions about what should be, uh, uh, political positions based upon a rousing appeal for fundraising or activity in the public square is almost bound to be damaging or ineffective if it's not rooted in something 
that we could call biblical theological or uh, a, a, a contextual understanding of how belief in Christ as the savior of myself and the world should be translated into public life. And CPJ and a number of other groups have said, you must think through the meaning of politics. You must think through what is possible and not possible, particularly in a democratic society, if there's going to be a Christian witness with integrity, as opposed to just spasmodic Christian shouts. Yes. Right, and, and just one thing, let me add that real quickly is, I think part of the problem is, is that most people do not think about the entire political process and how long it takes to go from some idea about what a policy might be to actually that policy being implemented. As, as I've heard some people say, they, 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 they want politics to be like the fire station. I know it's there, but I only want to know you're there when it's an emergency. So they only think about public policy when it's, it's a, an emergency policy. In other words, when there's a cause for alarm. And then they pay attention to it. And so they're not thinking consistently about the overall and, and long-term process of political action. And of course, the danger with that is, is that there are people who do. <laughs> and, and they are putting their nose to the grindstone and being involved in the long process. And they are the ones who are putting smaller as opposed to, and, and larger things into practice in terms of public policy. So there needs to be at least some Christians paying more attention to the, you know, the long game of politics rather than just the, you know, the call the fire station approach to politics. Well, let me ask you, we'll start with you, Vince, like how one does that. You know, we do see through a glass darkly, and yet there are things that require urgency. There are real injustices that need to be addressed. Those Christians who are involved in politics or, you know, cultural efforts, there are certain tried and true techniques and best practices that you know, usually lend themselves to stoking concern, if not fear, a sense of urgency. The things that you know, are the levers where political action uh, takes place. So, um, you know, Vince, you have literally written the book on what it means to be a political disciple and a, a theology of public life. How does one kind of engage and pursue that kind of theology amidst the, the constraints of our politics and the success of techniques that essentially work on the fallenness of human nature? Sure. Uh, one thing I, I would honestly recommend to everyone is uh, a curriculum uh, that CPJ has that's a political discipleship curriculum that basically reacquaints people with the way that our political system works. And it brings together people who are different from each other to sort of reacquaint themselves with that and to learn to choose an issue and to learn about this issue and to think about how to meet, how to pursue some kind of attention to that issue. And the, the, the idea is ultimately to culminate with meeting with hopefully a local representative, whether, whether, you know, whether it's someone in your town or whether it's all the way to someone who, who's in Congress, depending upon who you're able to, to meet with. And so the point is that you are then learning how to be participating in the system itself. So that's one thing that, that I would recommend. So Center for Public Justice, Political Discipleship Curriculum, that's one of the ways to do it. Uh, when people are doing that, I, I would say the first thing is, is to recognize that one, lower your expectations about what you're going to accomplish politically because you're not going to fully establish the kingdom of God. And so set that part aside while still you know, prioritizing the fact that as a Christian, 
you have a unique opportunity in a country like this one to use your political agency as a way to look, to look for, to express neighbor love. So what are things that you're interested in where you see antagonism to neighbor love, antagonism to human flourishing? And is there some issue locally, something in your state, something in your town that you care about? And then, and then I would say, turn your attention to that in terms of a very direct type of engagement. If people aren't doing that, then I would say at least one, try to vote at least, at least every four years, at least try to vote or every two years because of midterm elections, at least try to do that and do that in an informed way. But doing it in an informed way where, again, you're not just voting for one or two issues and your expectation isn't just about whether a person is, is only going to be a, a, a one issue type of person because they don't only most of the work they're doing isn't going to be just on that one issue. So are you going to pay attention to more of what a person is doing? And I, I understand that's a very hard thing to do when there's an avalanche of information that are coming at people all the time. But we have the opportunity to actually be involved in helping hopefully good candidates to get to office. I think a second thing is, of course, some people should think about whether they should actually perhaps participate at the local level, be a part of the school board. Maybe, you know, someone who's watching right now, maybe you want to run for mayor. Okay, well, go ahead and think about trying to do that, you know, or think about being involved in the party apparatus uh, of, of that, that goes on uh, in, in, in your county, you know, in, in your town. Th those are all different ways that I think that people can begin to get involved because there are possibilities in, in the democracy, in the Republic that, that we have. So, so that's the, the, the biggest thing that I would encourage. So the shorthand of it is put your antenna up and see what's already out there for participation because the possibilities for participation are already there. I think the problem is that most people, they, you know, they know that somebody's going to take care of the streets getting paid. Somebody's going to take, take care of deciding when a street gets expanded from two lanes to four lanes. All these different things that, that are decisions that people get made that are political decisions, actually. They're used to somebody just taking care of those. So for the most part, they're not in the crisis, enough of a crisis mode to actually so they need to pay that much attention to it. Hey, as long as it's not too bad, it's all right, right? So I think, you know, well, maybe try to dial up the attention a little bit more. <laughs> Start there is what I'd want to say. I think I would add that it's mostly from listening to political people who are astute like Vince and others that from a Christian angle, trying to discern what are major themes in the scriptures, major themes in the history of Christianity to propel public action is the place to begin, not uh, responding piecemeal to things that s seem particularly pressing right now, but trying to think throughout the length and breadth of scripture about what it is that God requires faithful servants to, to do. And, and, and we could talk about a number of particular areas, but it does seem to me that one of the things that comes through time and time again, particularly in the New Testament, is the idea that if I'm defending something that affects me, that can be good and proper and necessary, but the Christians are called, the believe, true believers, true followers of Christ are called to be as concerned or more concerned about injury to others 
an injury to myself. And that seems a, a pretty clear Bible principle that won't tell you how to vote on uh, minimum wage at $15, but will give you a perspective on how to evaluate your own participation in public life and how to evaluate the participation of other people. I think what's also part of that is our disposition towards people and the populace in general. In other words, one, if I'm committed to the to a particular truth, the fact that, that, that I'm right doesn't give me the right to lie in order to support the truth. And, and it doesn't give me the right to be condescending and dehumanizing of people with whom I disagree. I don't have, you know, I'm, it's, it's, my, it's my call to love my neighbors. And so, that, and, and it's my call to do the hard things like forgive people that offend me. And those are hard things, but that Christian commitment means I need to be the person that says, I'm not going to, you know, play dirty, or I'm not going to lie about people, or I'm not going to use rhetoric that is disrespectful to people just because of my political commitments. So I think that disposition is very important. Yeah. But one of the things that sort of strikes me is some of the involvement that you both have just been talking about, you know, pertains to the nitty gritty local level, you know, on a, you know, getting one's hands dirty, you know, the hard work of making the, the trains run on time. And you know, it's very kind of close to the community. And of course, so much of our political engagement now is a much more uh, sort of a spectator tribal kind of sport uh, that's you know based on national politics and rooting for one's team. Uh, and, and while there are a few patriot churches you know, in uh, the United States, for the most part, uh, that kind of politicization is not coming from the pulpit. There's a different sort of catechesis that's going on uh, in terms of media that uh, one may consume, uh, messages one hears, you know, that, that aims to sort of mobilize um, into that kind of tribal display. And I'd love to get both, both of your thoughts on what both churches, you know, church leaders, pastors, as well as interested parishioners can do to, you know, both encourage a more biblically grounded catechesis of Christian public and political engagement, and also for you know, people in their own individual capacities who may recognize like, you know, I, I think my media diet might be skewed in some way. Are there resources that they should go to? And we'll start with you on that one, Mark. Sure, and uh, I think it's often easy from the ivory tower to tell people what to do in an ideal world. And actually sometimes the ideas from the ivory tower are, are good ones. Mm -hmm. So you, you've described, I think in brief, the kind of silo situation we have for communications and, and media. That might be a, uh, I think it's happened at all times and places, but it's intensified in our time and place because of the dominance of social media and then the, the uh, plethora of sites that are and sources of information. It would seem to me that, that uh, in the churches, it would be always beneficial to have more than one Christian viewpoint when it comes to an adult ed class, a young people's class, looking at public service. How would you do this simply? Well, you have an issue, you read Sojourner's Magazine, and you read First Things Magazine. And you're going to get different points of view from a Christian angle as, as to the particular issue. 
in the broader public, the silo effect, I think, which you've talked about, is magnifying the voices on the extreme, a point Vince made, made earlier. If, like ourselves, we tend to watch the PBS NewsHour, maybe I should occasionally watch Fox News to find out a different angle and watch not just to criticize, not just to be on my high horse and say, oh, those idiots don't understand anything, but actually listening as if they might have something to inform me that I need to be informed about. So somehow getting out of your own echo chamber and hearing other voices and remembering always <clears throat> that voices exist from people who are made in the image of God and thereby have dignity. Two things I would say. One is just kind of following a look what Mark was just saying is actually interacting with people that aren't just the people you're used to interacting with. Mm -hmm. right? And if your church is big enough, in other words, can your church arrange opportunities for people just to get to know each other mm -hmm. and, and, and to learn about each other's lives? I think one of the biggest problems is, this includes the secular reality as well, that people don't know actually that much about the people about whom they seem to have omniscience. And so, so for example, you know, how many people in Silicon Valley actually know an evangelical Christian and have had a conversation with them? rather than being sure what they think they know about what an evangelical Christian stands for. Mm -hmm. uh, so similarly, you know, even within a church, I think most of these churches are going to have a diversity of people around, you know, whether they admit how much different they vote about things is another thing, but there's enough diversity for them to actually get together, have conversations and just learn about each other and be curious about each other, find out about other people's experiences, because a lot of times what happens is people don't really know that actually what some people are talking about is actually based in truth, right? So some people might think, well, nobody who's a Christian really gets persecuted, like, you know, in their office or whatever. It's, it's like, well, actually, it depends on the company you work for. It depends upon, you know, what, what, what's happening in your workspace. It might be a situation where you're, you, you are at a disadvantage because, because of that. But similarly, though, th there are a lot of people, you know, this goes back to the race thing, Sheree, actually. There are a lot of people, they actually do not know about, the life experiences of non-whites if they're, if, if they're in the majority culture. Mm -hmm. And they are what uh, someone from the Ferguson Commission said at a, an event we had here at Whedon. They're actually sincerely oblivious about the lives of other people. They, they, they have nice intentions, but they don't really know because they haven't interacted with people what their lives are actually like. And so the only way that that's going to happen is actually spending the time together and, 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 and majoring on having a uh, sense of humility and, and a listening ear and being more, uh, asking more questions rather than uh, sharing more information. I think that's one of the biggest things that needs to happen. The second thing I think is a major catechesis point, which is, is teaching people that their beliefs actually do orient them to their ethical practice. We have this split between our theology, what we, what we confess and our ethics, what we practice and they're not often very connected. The ethics winds up being very, very ad hoc type of things like, oh, there's a crisis. Let me sort of figure out maybe how a Christian ought to address it. The question ought to be is, how, is my, how are my beliefs already orienting me to live in a particular way? How's it orienting me to think about how I'm participating in this world, to, to perceive the world that I'm in and to be faithful in this world? And I think that, that you know, taking our beliefs into action 
and, and doing that explicitly is one of the most important dimensions of formation that needs to happen. That's great. Well, Mark and Vince, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I'd love to give each of you the last word. So Vince, let's start with you. What I would say in political disciple mode is that if you are a Christian, then your first loyalty is to God alone. If you love God above all, you can have the space to have to, to be open, your, open yourself to be a person where God can question you about your commitments. And in questioning you about your commitments, it's, you know, that can include how are you loving your nation? How are, and, and how are you loving other things? And if, if we're really those people with that first commitment to God and our trust is in God who is saving us because our nation does not save us, then, you know, our trust ought to be in him and displayed in our love of neighbor. And I would just encourage all of us to think about, you know, what are new ways I can imagine to love my neighbors, especially the neighbors that don't think like me. Being asked to think about Christian nationalism has led me to two historical conclusions and one theological conclusion. First, the Western Christian heritage has given great gifts to the history of the United States. The rule of law, the, the strength imparted by traditional families, the importance of personal moral responsibility. But secondly, churches, passively or actively, have done a great deal to undermine, have been complicit in undermining these great gifts. The theological point is, especially in a democracy, where we're encouraged to bring our values into the public space, Christian believers should always remember that even political opponents are made in the image of God. Even political opponents are those for whom Christ died. Vince and Mark, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure and an honor to be with you. Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on navigating the challenges of modernity. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations podcast to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of our past events.